Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket. I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. Uh, A book or a film or a TV show or a record that makes someone feel safe. Uh, Something they return to again and again and never lets them down. So I'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what it is about their choice that makes them feel so good and how it does its magic. This time I'm going to be talking to the journalist and broadcaster Pete Perfides. Uh, Pete wrote a huge memoir recently called Broken Greek about his life as seen through the prism of the pop music that surrounded him. A wonderful book, highly recommended. Uh, And this week Pete's going to talk about something that he grew up with and I grew up with as well, which I can't wait to talk about. The comic strip Peanuts. Charlie Brown is, I think... A little bit like everyone, we all need reassurance that some people really do like us. But I guess Charlie Brown is mostly me. That's why he often has that dumb expression on his face. But, for example, when I've been beaten in a golf tournament or a bridge game, or maybe if I bowl a bad game on a particular night when I feel low, this is when I come home and really pour it on poor old Charlie Brown. This is when he really suffers the most when I suffer the most. So you've chosen the comic strip Peanuts by Mm. Charles Schultz and I'm delighted because this is all I want to talk about. I know you're a fan. Yeah, this is generally, uh, if we weren't doing this, I'd be somewhere talking to someone about Peanuts anyway. So this is just... Uh, a continuation of, of normal business, really. <laughs> it's in honour of this that I've given you the peanuts mug today. Okay. You're drinking out of the uh, out of a receptacle featuring the classic kind of ensemble drawing of Charlie Brown and the gang. It's brilliant. It means I don't have to work from notes. I can work from a mug, which is <laughs> which is better and cosier. Oh, it's just uh, there's something just reassuring. Mm-hmm. I never worked out what it was with peanuts that the merchandise doesn't spoil it. Because a lot of things that you think when you've got yeah. something that's just got an essence, which is very beautiful and artistic, it's, it's that merch affa- ruins It's the affection that you feel for the characters and they're represented in their natural sort of setting. The only time it doesn't really work, Peanuts merchandise, is, you know, there was that moment in the late 70s where Snoopy became the breakout star yeah. of Peanuts. The Fonz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, obviously, I guess he had a Fonz-like alter ego, Joe Cool. Joe Cool. Yeah. Joe cool. 
you know, Snoopy outside of the context of Peanuts doesn't really work so well because the whole point about Snoopy is that, you know, he kind of represents our fear of what dogs really think of us. <laughs> yeah. And our desire to be more like dog-like than we can ever be, really. Oddly, I'd never occurred to me that Snoopy, obviously Snoopy's on his hind legs quite quickly in the evolution of Peanuts. He, he starts off as a dog and then becomes this fantasy character. But his attitude is more cat. The, the joke is the, the gap between Charlie Brown's this is a boy's best friend, this is dog, yeah. and Snoopy's aloof, this guy works for me attitude. So That's I think true, it, yeah. it's like that sort of thing where the software's wrong. Well, the reason Snoopy is so funny is that he's not been told what dogs are meant to be. That's right. That's, yeah, I don't think I thought of it in those terms either. It's fantastic, and he, he's so undog-like in many ways that, um, of course, it gives rise to so many running gags that Schultz returns through over time. Uh, one of my favourites being Peppermint Patty doesn't realise that he's a dog. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, she takes him to the the sort of school dance. And, you know, he, she just refers to him as your like your weird looking friend or something. Funny big nosed kid. Yeah, the funny big nosed kid. That's right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really nice, I mean, Peppermint Patty, I could talk about, I think is my favourite character in, in Peanuts. Probably, I've argued before, the greatest character in 20th century literature. But it tells you about Peppermint Patty and that she accepts everyone for who they think they are. She's yeah. very, very open to people. And if Snoopy wants to be a big-nosed kid and go to the school dance, Peppermint Patty's not going to question it. It's a really nice... Yeah. It speaks well of her that she thinks he's just another kid. Um, yeah, except I th- sort of think that sort of Charlie Brown, uh, she is slightly bewildered by Charlie Brown. Yeah. And, and his tendency to sort of... Uh, over what she would see as overthinking things or having slightly convoluted notions of what might constitute happiness. The funny thing about Peanuts is so many people experience it through the TV specials and things that you yeah. forget where it came from. And it's a, it's a black and white four-panel newspaper strip designed to be reproducible as cheaply as possible on cheap newsprints. So very clean, very clear lines. Four panels. Uh, Schultz invents a, a different slight kind of pacing for them sometimes where the joke will come on panel three and there'll be a, a, a double uh, extra punchline which then becomes in American comedy the way the Friends works and things yeah. it's a very influential style but it's a three panel gag strip with a kicker at the end of it uh, and then on Sunday he gets several decks three or four decks yeah. like a much bigger strip and they tend to be more philosophical yeah. uh, slightly artier yeah, so Russell T. Davis uh, said that he feels that it, much of what he learned about comic timing was through the, the use of the third panel wow. in Peanuts. Because the third panel typically is where he is, is usually devoted to the pause yeah. bet- between the, the denouement or the punchline or whatever. So often very little happens in the third panel. And, and you've got very simple faces, so very often there's just a stillness. People are waiting for what happens next, because it's a gag strip, it's a rule of three, you need to go one, two, three, but yeah. it's one, two, and three. Or sometimes one, two, three, and, and there's these, it plays these rhythms with it, partly I think because the characters are so strong, you're waiting to see what each of them are going to say, exactly. and you can kind of guess what they're going to say. Exactly, so I'm holding up, this is from the uh, from the 60s, maybe early to mid 60s, so this is a four panel strip where... Charlie Brown, we can see Charlie Brown's got his cap on and his satchel underneath his arm, so he's coming back from school, and he says, we all have our little daydreams, I guess. That's panel one. Panel two, then he looks kind of, a bit kind of gooey and sentimental, and his his eyes are shut as he imagines uh, this scenario. He says, 
I've always dreamed of having a dog who would greet me joyously when I come home from school. <laughs> Panel three is the one where Charlie Brown is just staring kind of vacantly um, at, at Snoopy, who's in his kind of customary lying on top of the kennel uh, pose, completely impassive, no emotion, not registering that Charlie Brown is there. And then the final... <laughs> final frame is a very sad Charlie Brown dejectedly walking off it tells you about the power of the cartoons the the animated cartoons is that that movement that motion out of frame on the picture plane two dimensional Mm. bum 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 walking along which they reference in Arrested Development there's a great thing where one of the characters does a long walk across a tracking shot with some uh, piano underneath it Mm. They've become merged, the TV cartoons and the strips now. But that's that's in the comic strip, the walk out of frame. The first frame, there's so much and yet so little in the first frame. We know that Charlie Brown is walking back from school and not to school because he's walking in the other direction to w- how he normally walks. Yeah, you so read from left to right. So if Charlie Brown is going from right to left, he's coming back. Yeah, and he's got his cap on and he's got a folder or a satchel underneath his arm. And with that information, with these key details, you know he's coming back from school before he even mentions it in the second frame. It's I think, I mean, there's, there's a technical thing in this, which is that what's happening in, in Peanuts, when you first encounter it as a kid, it looks really simple. And you've probably seen it as a, as a flask or a lunchbox where you've seen it as a, as a comic strip, maybe. I used to read it in the, in the paper at home. My parents used to get the Daily Mail, so it was in the back of that. But it's incredibly sophisticated. You're asked to read a lot and get a lot of clues out of very, very sparse details because it's not a very busy frame. It's a very yeah. empty frame. I think Schultz said, and he was saying it in reference to Johnny Hart, the, the cartoonist of BC and the and Wizard of Id, and he said that he said there were, there were artists who were rivet artists and they drew every rivet on a battleship and everyone admired those guys. And he said, but that's noodling. You can cover up a lot of inability to draw. And he said, but if you've got a straight line and a caveman standing on the horizon, you better put him in exactly the right place. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the principle that Schultz works to and then influences a whole generation of cartoonists afterwards because you can see when he first arrives in the late 50s doing this, very few people are drawing like this. Mm-hmm. This is graphic art this is pop mm. art before it's time it's simple circles lines black and white very reproducible and it looks great blown up which i think is why the merchandising look good it looks great, great true, blown yeah. up on a t-shirt yeah. that simple line and when you see the 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 um the frames or if you ever see his real art he drew it quite big yeah it's yeah. a big bold style it looks great on the nose kind of a plane looks great on the nose kind of a rocket yeah. it's just designed to be simple and for you to read information into the minimal I think the cartoon, uh, the cartoonist Chip Kidd, I interviewed him about this once, and he likened Charles Schultz's uh, impact on cartoons to that of the Bauhaus movement on architecture. Yeah. yeah that's a massive, that's a it's massive modernist. call. Yeah. And it's, it's hip, and it's clearly, it's, it's mod, it's Jasper Johns, it's big, bold, well, the Beats, circular shapes. The Beats loved uh, Peanuts, you know, the Peanuts was wholly adopted by the Beats, which does create this sort of tension between... Schultz is almost, was it disingenuous? I'm not sure. Or just reductive notion of what it was that he did. He didn't see himself as a subversive man, didn't see himself as an innovator, just saw himself as someone who was just trying to solve the immediate problem of what to put in that day's strip. I think I probably get more ideas from watching my own kids than I probably really would like to admit. This whole business with Lucy being a fuss budget I know came from our first girl and all of the things with the blanket came from the first three kids which we had because they all had blankets 
and then I suppose just watching the little arguments that they go through and this sort of thing has given me quite a few ideas too. Just uh, going back to what we were saying about um, uh, Peppermint Patty and Charlie Brown. So you've got... Um, <laughs> I've just realised so much of what I think I learnt about body language as a child was through watching peanut strips as well. And that's another sort of yeah. signifier of Schultz's genius. He uh, he conveys so many nuances of body language, usually in the reactions of the children who aren't talking while the other person, while the other child is talking. Have you ever tried to draw peanuts? Have you ever tried to copy it? Yes, it's you really get hard. It wrong. It's really hard. You realise that every line's in the right place. You can trace peanuts and kill it. The, it's amazing. Um, Every single pen line is telling you character. And who is the hardest character to draw? Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. You, you will always put the eyes too high or too low. He suddenly he looks optimistic. He doesn't you look sad. I cannot get Charlie Brown like I spent my whole life. Because <laughs> I, mas- I mastered Snoopy by the age of 12. Yeah. And I can still do a decent Snoopy now. But I never, I never did a Charlie Brown. What is that? I'm looking at him now. It's a circle and one, two... Three, four, five, six, seven lines. It's a circle and seven lines. That's Charlie Brown's face. But it's an expression via a man's wrist of a man's soul. And if you're mm. not thinking what he's thinking, it's like that close-up of Michael Caine in the actor's studio yeah. uh, documentary. If you're not thinking inside what's mm. coming through Charlie Brown, then you will transmit the wrong information. If you're worried or you're stiff, Mm. or you're anxious, or you're not anxious enough, you'll draw him wrong. Yeah. Um, anyway, you're, you're, you've got so, Peppermint Patty. So they're sort of sitting on the grass, uh, leaning against a tree trunk, facing away from each other. I love those strips. Yeah, and that's another great thing about this kind of reminds me of often conversations I have with my kids in the car, where we can bear our souls a bit more because actually we're looking straight ahead, and that kind yeah. of allows us to be more free with what we're saying. So she says, I have a question. What do you think the secret of living is, Chuck? She's the only character who calls him Chuck. <laughs> he says, the secret of living is to own a convertible and a lake. So clearly, <laughs> he's clearly thought about this already. He, this is an answer he has already. And she's quite surprised. She says, a convertible and a lake. And he explains, well, if the sun is shining, you can ride around in your convertible and be happy. If it starts to rain, it won't spoil your day because you can just say, oh, well, the rain will fill up my lake. I love that Charlie Brown's lake is half empty. We're not even there yet. This isn't even the punchline. So she goes, and then Snoopy comes along. And she says, what do you think the secret of living is, Snoopy? And then he just leans forward and kisses her on the nose. And you get this smack sound effect. And then Snoopy and Patty walk off together as she says, a convertible in a lake. I don't know about you, Chuck. And then Charlie Brown, almost oblivious to the fact that they're already walking off, goes, well, if your lake is drying up, you could say, oh, well, this is nice weather for riding in a convertible, dot, dot, dot. The implication being he's still saying it when they've gone. That's brilliant. And that's, there's a lot of that stuff... um, that's, that's, a, the, that's a the, dense amount of character interplay for four frames. Yes. And you're, you're pulling three characters in. I, I'd, I'd like to point out where we are. We're sitting in Peach Kitchen. There are just piles of Peanuts books all over the table here. And we're going through them. And I think it's important to say that we've got, I think, I've collected some of the, the, the posh bound complete editions that Fantagraphics put out and Canongate put out that are really, really beautiful. But the true home of Peanuts for me is the Coronet. 30p paperbacks which we've got piles of here yeah yeah these are the ones like these are the ones i had as a kid yeah and there's something about the transmission of these strips through 
cheap medium they're designed to be on cheap paper yeah. they're not designed to be art I went to the Somerset House exhibition I don't know if you yeah, went to that yeah. it was the first time they brought all of Schultz's art over and it was on the wall and it felt it was beautiful but it was wrong that it was in a gallery mm. and I went round with a friend and we got to halfway round it and there was just a breakout space with a couple of sofas and piles of these coronet mm. paperbacks mm. and both of us almost burst into tears at that point yeah. because that was Peanuts that yeah. Peanuts existed for you as a kid you owned Peanuts because you'd spent 30p on the book. Yeah. You didn't need to buy the art and put it on the wall. You owned this. It was cheap. And like a lot of things that kids find powerful, like pop music and, mm. and, and, and stuff, it was made for you. Yeah. yeah. But affordable. And it fitted in your pocket. I bought my, most of mine from Jumble Sales and they'd be like 5p. Yeah, they weren't hard to find at the time. I don't really see them too much around now. But yeah, they, if you go to hipster shops now, they're worth a bomb. Are they? Yeah. I'm not, not, and I'm not hundreds yeah. of quid, but like, you're not paying 5p for them anymore. Amazing. ideas come from my own childhood, my own childhood experiences. In a way, it's a little bit embarrassing to realize that maybe 40, 50, 60 million people are reading about some of the dumb things which I did when I was little. He talks to Peppermint Patty very differently than he talks to Linus. Linus and him talk philosophically. Yeah. Linus is the great philosopher in Peanuts, and they talk. He's, he's got all the references. He's read all the books. Yeah. The beautiful thing about Linus, everyone, anyone who's ever seen Charlie Brown Christmas knows Linus is the one who can quote scripture verbatim yeah, at yeah, length. Yeah. They have a very different relationship. It's just slightly more melancholy. But when Peppermint Patty and Charlie Brown are talking, they talk about the future and they talk about imagining themselves older, which is, uh, there aren't any adults in Peanuts. That's an important thing. That's why in the, in the cartoons they, they have trumpet noises for when they do have to have a grown-up. There are no grown-ups in Peanuts. It's entirely populated by children. But Patty and Charlie Brown will talk about their ambitions for what they're going to be like when they grow up. And they're completely incompatible. She is secretly in love with him. They might be great together. We don't know. There's a beautiful codependency there. But they talk about this. And that's when Charlie Brown reveals he fantasizes about a sports car and he fantasizes about love and affection. Mm. His ambitions are very rarely as big as the sports car on the lake. Yeah. They tend to be, I want someone to notice me. I want to be loved. And I think that, that that's really key to this. I don't think as a kid I'd ever read anything where melancholy was allowed. Mm. And I don't think I'd read anything where the lead character was a failure by the standards of every other character in the strip and yet had an inner strength that meant he would survive, he would endure. As a kid, you fantasise about invincible heroes and you want Batman and you want the tough guy and you want that. I remember showing James Bond to my kid when they were very small Mm. and they loved it when he was in the fast car and when he could outwit the baddies and he had all the magic gadgets. And I remember as soon as Bond was strapped down by Goldfinger with a laser, my kid panicked. Ah. Because the hero can't be vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. And I think you have to be quite a sophisticated kid to encounter your first vulnerable hero. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. think for me, my first vulnerable hero was probably Charlie Brown. I don't know if it was the same for you. Definitely, absolutely. Uh, the the thing about Charlie Brown as well is, and and actually Charlie Brown and Peppermint Patty both have this in common, is they both don't think they're very lovable. And they express it in sort of different ways. Uh, Patty expresses it in a sort of slightly more outwardly kind of bullish way she's angry at the world for for, for overlooking her yeah 
yeah, she's quite tomboyish uh, because she can never feels she can never com- compete on a kind of level playing field of of accepted notions of feminine kind of beauty. Or Framed on the wall of my toilet is cut out of an old Sunday supplement. It's Peppermint Patty watching the Miss World contest. Wow. Which I was always my favourite peppermint patty strip, and I found it for sale, framed in a market somewhere, and went, "Oh my god, you've got my favourite one!" That's and that's her just going, "I will never be loved as these women are loved." And it's yeah. just—it's a beautifully feminist and clever uh, yeah. take on on a girl who doesn't want to be pretty but wants to be pretty. Yeah, and Charlie Brown is a romantic idealist. Um, he he believes in the fairy tale, and this is this is the point where I sort of. Um, I think I'm probably a romantic idealist. I certainly grew up being a romantic idealist. I think I still am. Um, And that's something I got from pop music and I got it from Charlie Brown. I got the, but if I had the girl of my dreams, you know, (laughs) I I would treat her right. You know, I, you know, I'd be, and and I'll probably never get that chance because look at all these guys, look at all these creeps, these confident people. These, you know, these alpha males yeah. who are all ahead of me in the queue and probably will always be ahead of me in the queue. And why would you fancy someone like me when you could fancy someone like that? And Char- that's what Charlie Brown is. Charlie Brown, you sort of root for him because if you're quite beater as well, then, you know, if he's got a chance, then maybe you've got a chance as well. You know, it's I remember I interviewed Paddy McAloon once and I said, one thing I love about your songs, um, especially your romantic songs, is you know you sound like someone who believes that, that against all empirical evidence, you still believe that love can save the world. You know, mm. and um, and that's kind of Charlie Brown's a bit that that way as well. Against, against it never occurred to me how pop music, how pop this is. It does have the same plangent. It's a it's a jangly yearning indiness about it. Oh, it's very indie. indiness. Um, you're, you're right. That's what you're getting from Charlie Brown. Is a what's odd about him is he's not a loser because I've got a mug here and he's surrounded by friends. They all well, value him for his beaterness. Yeah, he's um, everyone's favourite blockhead. Yeah, <laughs> and you know there's a, there's an amazing uh, series. Charlie Brown goes to hospital. Charlie Brown has a hosp- hospital stay. And everyone misses him. He, he, he's, he's in the middle of a baseball game and he's worried that he's been hit on the head with too many fly balls. <laughs> and so he checks himself in. He goes to hospital alone. There's this strip of him looking up at the emergency entrance sign. And the first thing he says when he goes to hospital, so Charlie Brown is, good afternoon, Mum. I don't mean to be any trouble, but I have the awful feeling that I may be an emergency. Kind of uh, the pathos of it reveals itself over successive days. Peppermint Patty calls Charlie Brown's house to ask if she can talk to Chuck. And Sally says, I don't know where he is. Somebody said he got sick at the ball game, but he never came home. Anyway, I'm too busy to talk right now. I'm moving my things into his room. <laughs> and then look at this. Look at this, Joel. This is, this is, look at this beautifully drawn uh, series of frames of Chuck him just under a blanket lying in his hospital bed wondering what's going to happen to himself and one by one over the next few days they all realise how vital he is in that little social network they have they all start to miss him in different ways and Peppermint Patty and Marcy are just sitting on the bench outside the hospital keeping vigil looking very up very sweet well, and, the Sunday strips well you just turned into a Sunday strip here yeah. it is Peanuts featuring in inverted commas good old Charlie Brown he is the linchpin of it. And when people talk about this, when you read about what Schultz thought about his gang, his big ensemble, yeah. he was Chuck. I'm just about 100% Charlie Brown. 
He had a little redhead girl who he, he, he fantasized about as a kid. Lots of Charlie Brown's story <laughs> is, is Schultz's story. But the more you dig into it, the more you realize he's peopled the strip with the rest of the characters from his life, like his wife, who is very, very strident, is Lucy. Hmm. And then you start to see other features of Schultz in other characters. I hadn't realized I was reading it this morning that he thought that Schroeder, the kid at the toy piano, hmm. was him. Hmm. someone who's constantly got his head down over a drawing board or a piano oh, yeah, working yeah, a piece yeah, of art yeah, 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 and yeah. with Lucy the wife at the end of things saying talk to me talk to me about love talk to me about yeah. romance talk to me about the real world talk to me about the kids or whatever yeah. she would have said and he's the artist who can't be broken out of it and Schroeder looks like he's there's something about Schroeder that you go oh there's something missing or hmm. or something unusual about you that you should be able to engage more with the world yeah, and yeah. it's him talking to himself about well when I'm lost in my, my drawing board I can't really function I don't really talk to my wife properly yeah I still would rather sit down and draw a good comic strip than do anything else when I have a good idea. And sometimes when I have an idea which is really good, especially for a Sunday page, uh, I work myself up into such a nervous pitch that I can hardly letter the thing. I'm so anxious to get the thing down on paper. He's done what all artists do with an ensemble, which is he's broken his character into fragments. Yeah and spoken about his feelings and the different yeah. facets of his personality through these little very, very simple characters. Most of the ideas I get merely sitting here at the drawing board, doodling on a piece of white paper, starting arguments in my own mind between Charlie Brown and Lucy and Linus or the dog or something. And in the middle of it all is Charlie Brown, who is a round circle. And the rule, I'm a Scott McCloud, the brilliant comics theorist, said, you always look at the, the middle character in children's comics... Uh, Tintin, Charlie Brown, Batman, Spider-Man, Judge Dredd, they don't have a face. They are a vague sense of where eyes and mouth are. And the reason that is, is because when you're talking to someone, I'm talking to you, I don't know what I look like. I've got a vague sense of where my eyes and my mouth are. Oh, right, yeah, and he said, yeah, the yeah, identification yeah. with the character, your identification character should look like a plug socket. It's just two dots and a, a line. It's a smiley face. It's, a, yeah. it's as simple as possible. And Charlie Brown is meant to be the person you feel like. Rough idea is that that's Schultz. That's how Schultz sees the world. And around him are orbiting versions of him mm. that he either likes or doesn't like as much. Yeah. And also the versions of the people around him. So, of course, if you remove Charlie Brown and take him to hospital, the strip yeah. stops working. He may be a blockhead, but he's the, he's the most important blockhead there. So the obvious question is, uh, when did you first come across Peanuts and Charlie Brown? In the first year of junior school, we were encouraged to join a book club you were given a leaflet um i think it's part of a drive to get more i think it was the scholastic book club. i remember that yeah 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 little leaflet yeah. catalogue and you'd have little kind of photographs of the books you kind of order three books a month or something uh, at a reduced price and one of them was a one of those charlie brown books that it was just one of the ones i chose and um i just sort of it just completely like it, the, it and it was the character of charlie brown i remember i absolutely sort of any sort of membrane that divided me from charlie brown in the way that i understood who he was just sort of completely disappeared it seemed com his way of looking at the world if it wasn't already my way of looking at the world, then that thing happened that, you know, sort of happens when you're little is, you know, they melt into each other. People call, talk about this and they say it's the, the what's important in art is to, is, to, is to be seen, is to see yourself represented. Yeah, yeah. You need to see more women in roles and more, more diverse casting and things because people need to see themselves sure. reflected in art. That's also true of character types as well. And Charlie Brown, I suppose, is a character type you didn't see much in art. 
No, absolutely. And there was, um, God knows, I, I don't know what came first, but in a very instinctive way, I wasn't trying to be indie. I wasn't trying to be an outsider. You know, I too was, small I was seven or eight, exactly <laughs> at that age. You don't really sort of, you're not consciously making these decisions. Uh, but I sort of ident- I identified with also rans with people. You know, I sort of <laughs> instinctively knew already that there was a certain kind of experience of living, experience of be of, of, of a certain kind of status within a wider group that I was probably never sort of going to enjoy, um, and so I was looking for people that w- that would be kind of idealised versions of the kind of heroes that it wouldn't be absurd for me to have so at the same time i had read about the uh the munich air disaster in which uh (laughs) the manchester united first much of the manchester united first team was tragically killed in an air crash in 1958 it was the 20th anniversary of of munich so there was a lot it was but you'd 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 hear about it on john craven's news round and stuff like that and i immediately decided that manchester united were now my favorite team because of the sadness I felt sorry. Yeah, I felt sorry for Manchester United, and it seemed to. But it wasn't just Munich. It was the fact that they were kind of languishing in the middle of the table and had been for some time now, and were clearly a team who could not live up to their past glories. Right. And so it was just a comfortable fit. Did they need you? I felt like I felt like we could. We were a good match. Yeah, in that way. And I felt that. And within that, because I just collected my first Panini uh, football album. Football 78 and the their centre forward Jimmy Greenhoff became just my favourite footballer in the world my absolute hero because and part of it was you know if you look at his mugshot and anyone can do this if they're <laughs> listening now if you look if you just google uh, Jimmy Greenhoff football 78 panini sticker then you'll see a slightly uncertain surprised looking man <laughs> who kind of see unlike all the other footballers in the Man United lineup seems not to be ready for the for the <laughs> photographer's flashbulb. <laughs> it must be wonderful to be back there, what, twice in three years? Yes, um, and the thing is, I've another, I went there and uh, four times I got beaten in semi-finals, and now it's the second time I went, which I could be the second win, and I've still another couple of years in the contract. With and so, and he, <laughs> he, was, he was good, he was a good footballer, but he wasn't, he wasn't England calibre, right. he wasn't sort of, he was a sort of journeyman, and that was just about as plausibly realistic a hero I could have in my life. Roy is just inside, Greenoff is far post, Jimmy Greenoff! Manchester United have scored, and it's the man that got the winner in the final, Jimmy Greenoff! The funny thing is, when you're a child, more than ever, your processing speed is faster than it will ever be. So you make these connections between who your heroes are and the reason, you know, all this stuff happens super quickly. So in my head, Jimmy Greenhoff, Charlie Brown, Munich, Manchester United, Journeyman, me. (laughs) And then, of course... You know, within a couple of years, I'd read this um, amazing storyline in the Charlie Brown strips. By that time, I knew that Charlie Brown's favourite sportsman was a baseball player called Joe Schlobotnik. Joe Schlobotnik. As we walked up the steps to your house, I referred to Joe Schlobotnik. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is the this is the code we have between us. Do you want to, you, well, I've I've spoken. I feel like I've been talking to him. Why don't you talk about what happens when? The, the Joe Schlobotnik testimonial dinner happens. Well, it's, it's, it's Charlie Brown. I'm trying to remember this. It's been a long time since I read it, but Charlie Brown wants to, his team 
decide to treat Chuck by throwing a testimonial dinner for him. That's it. Because obviously the, the joke is that Charlie Brown's baseball team are the worst baseball team ever. And the problem appears to be the rest of the team, but it's entirely laid on his shoulders that he's yeah. a bad yeah. manager. He's yeah, I mean, he's, he's bad as well. You know. They're all yeah, bad, yeah. but it's, it's definitely, it's, they're the wrong people for the job. But they arrange a testimonial dinner because it's the nicest thing that ever have happened. And Linus, I think, decides that the best thing to do, the nice thing to do, will be to phone up his hero, which is a baseball player called Joe Slobotnik, and have him come to Chuck's testimonial dinner. And the great thing about Joe Slobotnik, which you realise when you read it, is that Joe Slobotnik's no good at all. He's, yeah. weirdly, he is Charlie Brown's baseball spirit animal in that he's also a low-achieving thing. So everything about it is it's not getting Babe Ruth or the, the best guy. No one else has heard of him. No, exactly. And of course, the, the, the perfect thing is it builds up and builds up. And of course, Joe Slobotnik, doesn't turn up. No, no. So even the low ambition of having like a minor, minor, minor league baseball player turns up. Uh, and Chuck still weathers it out. Yeah, he, he has remains faith. Strong. Of course, Charlie Brown never loses faith in Joe Slobotnik. Charlie Brown, his, his faith is undeterred. Great- it's, it's a huge parallel to Linus and the Great Pumpkin. Yeah, is yeah. That, that Charlie Brown in that moment, it's a lovely moment where he's like Linus waiting in the pumpkin patch yeah. for the Great Pumpkin, who we know will never come. Charlie Brown will always run at Lucy holding the ball, thinking that this time he'll get to kick the football. He'll always run at the tree with his kite, knowing the tree's going to eat his kite, yeah. but he still tries. And there is a sort of a, a mythic, heroic message about just don't give up. Even if you're going to fail, don't give up. The, the failure will, will forge you, make you better, make you stronger. Hmm. And the ending might not be that you get forged and made stronger and win, you might get forward, make stronger and just fail again, but you'll be better at failing, yeah. which is an incredibly un-American message, an incredibly unpopular. Our culture doesn't have that in it. And I think I, I link my love of Charlie Brown with my love of other things, like uh, I love the film Anvil. I like Spinal yeah. Tap. I yeah. like the fact that Spinal Tap are nearly good enough. Yeah. They're not a great band. I like yeah. these stories of people who nearly I mean, I, are I good enough. Yeah, I feel so lucky that to have had these kind of... I don't know who I'd be without these things. I don't know who I'd be without, you know, Gregory's girl. You see yourself reflected in it and then you feel happier to be you? Is it just a comfort to know that you just feel seen? Well, you feel less alone, definitely. You know, you feel like, be it Charlie Brown or Gregory, you know, you sort of feel like, um, let's take the example of sort of, if you're like one of those kids who looks in the mirror and, you know, cannot imagine that the thing that's staring back at them could seriously com- compete in any kind of meaningful way at all the things that you are expected to compete yeah. at that you know in, in later on in life then um it's just reassuring it's reassuring i mean gregory sort of he doesn't get the he doesn't get dorothy at the end of but actually he kind of he learns an important lesson that maybe he was never meant to get dorothy you know that, uh, it's incredibly charlie brown and peppermint patty mm-hmm. all the scenes lying looking up at the clouds do you want to dance? It's really good. You just lie flat down and dance. I'll show you what I mean. I'll, I'll start it off and you just join in when you feel confident enough. Okay. Yeah, lying very da- dancing nuts. on the grass. Yeah, yeah all it's of all, that. That's, yeah, it's very the same much. Time. And you said the word mirror there, which I think is really important, is that if you look in the mirror and it doesn't match the pop stars and the mm. sports stars, yeah, it's really healthy to look in a different sort of mirror and see yourself, a mirror of a, a comic or a TV yeah. show or a film and just go, oh, that, that, that's, that's one of me. Yeah. And I think that, that you can feel very lonely if you don't, if you, if you dismiss your ability to measure up, it's yeah. a very traumatic thing to, 
to feel you're not tall enough or good looking enough or fast enough because school's full of judgments you're always being measured and told you've failed or succeeded the number of characters in peanuts who constantly get f's at school yeah that then informs yeah. calvin and bart yeah. that those great school Failing. characters who have value beyond their academic achievement that's so important for kids to learn that it doesn't matter but it's also about the pressures which are on these children the pressures which they get not only from other kids around them but also from their parents and then from school too Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, like I said to my kids, you know, whenever they were kind of worried about, you know, when their maths teacher was giving them a hard time, making it sound like being good at maths was the most important thing in the world. You know, to say, well, your maths teacher is ultimately just looking out for herself. She doesn't want her superiors to think she's a bad teacher, yeah. you know, um, but you're you are the most important thing. You know, when you go for that job interview, whenever that is five, 10 years down the line. You know, and it's between you and some other person. They're going to give it to the nicer person. They're not going to. Mm. They're going to give it to the person they can imagine themselves being down the pub with. The person they can imagine themselves not being screwed over by. And those are all sort of uh, things I can almost imagine. You know, Charlie Brown's father, who he was very close to, who was he was a barber, and, and uh, as Schultz's father was, uh, and he would go into the barber shop and just sit and wait for him to sort of cut the hair of the last customer, and then they would go home together. And there was this very that's very much a reflection of Schultz's own relationship with his father. Um, you know, you are sort of gathering together the, your sort of uh, your kind of your battle weapons, or at least your your kind of armor to sort of help you through life and you gather it together as a child through sort of art and culture and so I sort of feel very lucky that I, I sort of had Peanuts and I had Charlie Brown and I also had like we said things like Gregory's Girl and you know a journeyman kind of football team <laughs> that had sort of seen their we all know. need a Shlobotnik I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I was very lucky that, you know, I finally got around to sort of writing my book, which is a childhood memoir called Broken Greek. It was only then, and, you know, everyone should try and write a childhood memoir. I hugely recommend it because all these things that were kind of like sort of nagging away that you didn't kind of understand sort of suddenly fall into place. Why did I remember this, but not that? And a good an example, and this is such a Charlie Brown <laughs> narrative. So Manchester United, at the time when I started supporting them, were managed by this very, a 
avuncular, sweet, lovely man, like far too nice really to be a top draw yeah. football manager called Dave Sexton. He like, probably just wanted to be my dad, really. <laughs> uh, everyone loved him. You know, it was just all the players, you know, very popular, but just maybe lacked that ruthless sort of streak. But, um, well, obviously, Arsenal are a good side and uh, we drew down there and they beat us at home. And the one kind of ostentatious sort of thing that he did, his last purchase before um, he was sacked, was <laughs> to buy uh, this uh, Nottingham Forest centre-forward called Gary Bertels, who had just kind of come through. Forest had signed him from a non-league club. His first full season at Nottingham Forest, he was the top scorer in the league. It was like he played in the European Cup final. It was like a fair, it was like a Roy of the Rovers. Big deal. Stellar yeah. ascent. And finally, you know, the most historically romantic football club, you know, Manchester United had made a bid for him. And, and you know, it was very high. I think £800,000, which was a lot of the time. Yeah. And so the following season, he started as a Manchester United player. So who can believe it? Two years ago, he was a carpet fitter playing part-time. And now he's, he's leading the attack. I think he replaced Jimmy Greenhoff. But of course, the most Charlie Brown thing happened ever. You know, he forgot how to score. <laughs> he played something like 40 games without scoring a single goal. And of course, you've got, there's going to have the one time Dave Sexton, who was a very Charlie Brown manager, yeah. did the big kind of like headline grabbing kind of star signing. The only time he really did that in his career, the effect was that the, 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 the player he signed just stopped scoring. And that, so all these things kind of feed into your personal mythology. And then, you know, by the time you've heard Orange Juice's first album, which again is a sort of underachiever thing and all the other stuff, and Gregory's Girl, then, you know, a whole worldview is ossified. And it, re and it starts with Charlie Brown. I really think it does. I remember there's a terrific Charlie Brown strip where he starts winning a running race. <laughs> He's ahead, and he's he, and it's all in his head. You can see the bubbles above his head. He's finally winning. He, he outpaces all the other guys, and he throws his head back mm. in joy and closes his eyes for the feeling of actually being ahead of everybody, and then forgets to take the bend and just runs <laughs> off into the woods. <laughs> and as a kid, I remember thinking that was a the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Brilliant. And he's and he's running through the woods. He's not noticed he's gone off the track, and I think Pepin, Patty, and Marcy are going Chuck, Chuck, turn left. He got to a point where he was really good at something. But he was so in love with the idea of being really good at something, of seizing his moment, that he then dropped his moment. And that's a totally and that Charlie Brown thing. surely brings us on to what I think is the greatest storyline in history of Charlie Brown. And maybe I'm just going to turn my computer around because I've got, I've got it lined up here. Do you remember this? Oh, when God. Is this, this, this is the one where... Charlie Brown. So I was looking at this. Charlie Brown's in bed and he wakes up. There's something wrong. He looks anxious under his covers. And then there's a, a glow on the horizon outside his window. The sun's coming up. And when the sun comes up, it's a massive baseball. Right, okay. And Charlie looks st straight out of the, the frame at you. How the hell did this happen? Like he's fallen through into right. an unreal world. Char Charles Schultz said that he this was probably his favourite storyline of all the storylines he wonderful. Drew. So next day, and this brings us on to another brilliant kind of detail, recurring detail of the strips, Lucy's psychiatric booth, her, the doctor is in. Again, very hipster, very of its time, that psychiatry yeah. was there. I remember watching one of the Peanuts cartoons with my kid and the opening of uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, which is often the first thing you see because it's on at Christmas. Mm. And Charlie Brown turns to Linus, the first line says, 
I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. It's a kid's cartoon that your kids can watch that's completely kid-friendly, and it's about depression, yeah. anxiety, mental health, things that kids suffer from, but was unsaid. Oh, well, you know, we're talking about a comic strip. This is a brief aside, but we're talking about a comic strip where one of the, which has a kind of supporting cast of sentient inanimate objects that who, whose thoughts we can see via thought bubbles. So one of one of them is the local school. Yeah, Sally has got quite a close friendship with the local, so she sometimes goes and talks, talks to the wall to the she? school yeah. building, and you hear its responses mediated through thought bubbles. And the, the school itself suffers from depression. There's a great strip, actually, where the school is kind of dreading the beginning of, of, of the school term. And actually, it's all thoughts that we as children who weren't looking forward to school, yeah. you know, would, would have, like, I'm going to have to start, you know, be ready in the mornings, the noise, that kind of... But it, it's actually the school feels that way as well. So it's not just the children, but the, the school, school feels... at some point, doesn't it kill itself? It, this it is collapses, what it. yeah. The school commits suicide. <laughs> Sally goes back and it's just a pile of props. It's the it's the only death that oh a God. character that a peanuts character has ever uh, that we've ever seen. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I remember I remember that the, the, I've got the frame in my head of Sally and the pile of rubble and her shocked face that the school overnight took its own life. It loses the will to live. Um, so Charlie Brown goes to see Lucy. Yesterday morning I woke up very early, uh, couldn't sleep, my bedroom faces east, and it well, the sun didn't come up, it was a huge baseball. I think I must be cracking up. I, you know, I'm finally losing my mind, and on top of it all I feel terribly alone. And Lucy goes, okay, now tell me more about this huge baseball. <laughs> the following day he goes out and looks at the moon, it's a full moon, and it's not a moon, it's a big baseball that's in the sky. <laughs> Anyway, things get a lot worse. He goes to get an ice cream cone, and the ice cream cone uh, appears to be a base, but everything is turning it's into a base. It's caresque, and it's Yeah. Just- He's leaning against the wall with Linus, and Linus, he's saying to Linus, everything looks like a baseball to me, and now my head has started to itch. I think I might have a rash or something. And he turns around, and Linus is the first to observe that Charlie Brown has now developed some stigmata on the back of his head that look like the stitching of a baseball. <laughs> So it's now become some kind of psychosomatic condition. So how to get ahead in advertising, but with a baseball. Yeah, yeah. So you go see that now he's got a bag on his head with two eye holes cut out, which is just a funny thing, you know, like yeah. just a bag with two eye holes. It will always be a funny thing. So you go see the, to the doctor about it. But the thing is, he's running out of time because it's, it's the school term has ended. He has to go to camp where most American kids have to go for the summer. his least favourite thing in the world. And he's always the unpopular kid at camp. He always struggles. He hates being away from home. He'll be bullied for having a baseball for a head. Yeah, and so, you know, we see the morning of camp, his sister Sally goes, what are you packing for, big brother? And he says, my doctor says I should go to camp. He said, I have to do something to take my mind off baseball. He boards the bus. He boards the bus. We see him in the Ah. window of the bus with the bag on his head. He's obviously scared, full of trepidation as to what's going to happen to him. And anyway, so he turns up at camp. The first thing that happens is that they, what they do every year at camp is the first thing they have to do is they have to elect a camp president. And one of the kids goes, I've got a great idea. Let's nominate the kid over here with the sack over his head. <laughs> and he's been, no, he's been voted president. He's suddenly, and then he, some, the, some kid goes up and says, congratulations, sack. <laughs> so now he's got a new name. His new name is sack. He's got a whole new identity. He's got a whole new identity. So what, and this, is, this goes back to what you said about him. He's winning. A kid yeah. goes up to him and says, hey, Mr. Sack, Mr. Sack, 
Remember how I told you I couldn't find my shoe? Well, I did like you said. I looked under my bunk again and there it was. You're a good camp president, Mr. Sack. And suddenly he kind of beca- he develops these messianic qualities. Like people are listening to him and people are attributing, accrediting him with improvements in the camp that he had nothing to do with, like the breakfast being better this year. This is astonishing. I, I, don't, I'd forgotten this story. This is so, it's magic realist. It's just, you forget that Peanuts... Is set in the real world, but has mm. total flexibility about fantasy. It's not very really clear whether Snoopy can really fly into the air with the, uh, with his kennel as a plane. It's not one hundred percent sure. It occasionally has bullet holes across it. Oh, yeah. the, the The reality is as flexible as a cartoon. Yeah. So basically, within this, you can do a magical realist story about someone changing their identity. Totally, and this is and this I love these strips where this is clearly Charles Schultz drawing on his own details of his own life so this is in the middle of the camp narrative um charlie brown still with the bag on his head and a, another kid at camp we don't know who he is they're at the end of a little jetty and they're fishing and charlie brown says years ago there was a cartoon drawn, drawn by frank wing about fishing this boy was helping his dad hoe the garden and he said gee pa i'll bet the fish are biting good today and his dad said uh-huh and if you stay where you're at they won't bite you and the kid goes, that's very funny, Mr. Sack. And Charlie Brown goes, I always like that cartoon. And the kid goes, you're fun to be with, Mr. Sack. And he just says, thank you. So suddenly, like, every story he tells is fascinating. And, and anyway, so the, we can guess what's kind of coming now. It's the final day of camp, and Charlie Brown's taking the bag off his head. And, and the, the kid who's rooming with him says, Mr. Sack, what are you doing up so early? And he goes, I'm going out to watch the sunrise. If it's the sun, I'll know I'm cured. If it's a baseball, I'm still in trouble. And then the kid goes, he didn't have a sack over his head. He is our camp president. <laughs> and so the, <laughs> the game's up. And, uh, and look at this. Oh my God! That's, t- tell me, tell me what you see, Joel. Right, this is our climactic uh, development after Charlie Brown has taken the bag off his head. He's so he's been through this weird story where he where he stops being Charlie Brown and then becomes acceptable to the world by putting a bag over his head. The bag's off his head. He goes out to look at the sun to see if he's cured. Waits for the sunrise. The sun comes up. Frame three. The pause is Charlie Brown looking shocked and you can't see what he's seen. And over the edge of the horizon, Alfred E. Newman, <laughs> the face of Mad Magazine has popped over the horizon with, what, me, worry? So <laughs> what ano- is that? another cartoon character has burst into his world. I mean, that is just like madness. I mean, that's just like... It's a total freedom. It's, it's, he's playing with... You can follow it. I think that's the thing about it, is it's nuts. It's crazy. It's, it's got uh, its own rules and things. But you can completely follow it, and it's completely within hmm. those rules. My brother and I were fascinated by, uh, in the Sunday strips... Yeah. Very often, uh, I didn't know this until Bill Watterson from Calvin and Hobbes talked about it. Yeah, the Sunday strips run in different newspapers at different sizes. Sometimes they'll run a four deck strip. Sometimes they don't have room, and a newspaper will cut the top line off. Mm. And it meant that if you look at the rhythm of a peanut Sunday strip, the first two frames don't relate to the story, yeah. and that's in case someone cut them off. Mm-hmm. But very often, the very first frame. So there's, there's three frames at the top. One will say peanuts. Good old Charlie Brown. There's two mm. frames which will be introducing it. They can be cut off. So they, they tend to be sort of a little sub-gag. Mm. But the first frame very often is a surreal image. Mm. It'll, be ch- it'll, it'll tell you something. It's like a logo, like a title card at the beginning of a Tom yeah. and Jerry cartoon, yeah, which will show them bowling or something. Yeah. The first thing, if it's a bowling thing, it'll be Charlie Brown and he will be a bowling ball. Mm-hmm. 
And we used to find this hilarious mm. that Charlie Brown was this flexible character who could mm. be a bowling ball yeah, yeah. or the moon or whatever. Yeah. And we used to draw piss takes. This time. We thought it was the funniest thing with Charlie Brown was this flexible character. This strip is the first time that Charlie Brown's world is flexible enough that the actual narrative story contains the kind of taking a line for a walk rule breaking that's in those first frames yeah, where yeah. Charlie Brown turns into a yeah. baseball. Yeah. That's... It, the strip doesn't have that elasticity usually, but no. yeah, it does. That doesn't break it. That completely fills the world because the character never changes. There's an authentic story there about a loser discovering they're only acceptable when they are not themselves, mm-hmm. which is a... God, I mean, that's that's the thing you get told as a, as a sort of shy or a beta kid, isn't it? Oh, just be more confident, be more yourself. And Charlie Brown gets it by putting a bag over his head. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's like know your place, you know. Don't <laughs> don't get above your don't get above your station. You know, these are all sort of, <laughs> this is messaging I feel weirdly sort of comfortable with. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that's surrealism. You know, Charles Schultz's groundbreaking instinct for knowing what he could get away with is just so ahead of its time and is so counter to how he presented as a sort of fairly sort of straight-edged sort of traditional kind of guy. That's fascinating. I mean, the the conservatism of Charlie... One of the things I really felt going to the Somerset House exhibition is growing up, because Charlie Brown, you could buy it in shops, you could buy the mugs and the and the T-shirts and things. It was part of the culture. It was a big mainstream thing. And only when you read the strips and realised there was this melancholy, there was a much deeper story in mm. it. But he felt like he was he was central enough to America's self-myth that they would paint Charlie Brown and Snoopy on Apollo yeah. rockets. Yeah. He's American. The original title for the strip is Lil Folks. It's the mm. most authentic down-home conservative yeah. thing. And yet everything about it is radical. Mm. accepting a failure, saying that the American dream leaves people out, yeah. saying that you can't be who you want to be. Everything about it is subversive. And yet Charles Schultz was a stealth subversive. Yeah. He's bringing in things like the first black character into a, into a syndicated comic yeah. strip. He's bringing in feminism, non-gender conformity in people like Marcy and, and Pepper yeah. and Patty. There's loads of stuff that's way ahead of its time. He's not a conservative cartoonist. He's not folksy and he's not part of... Republican small town America, and yet he was totally accepted by that culture. Yeah, I'm mean, part to- of it. Towards the end of his life, he called himself a secular humanist. Where he, I think he started off as a sort of nominally sort of God fearing person. His scriptural knowledge is really spot on. It's and always he, really good. Yeah, and he often uses it to great comic effect in, you know, Linus is through Linus. Is yeah. talking in scripture. And, um, you know, he introduced Franklin in 1968 um, and um, first character of colour. And then he got a letter. He sort of he told a story about how he got a letter from someone uh, who really objected to what he'd done with Franklin and said, uh, we, we have to at least accept that there has to be a black character in Peanuts. For God's sake, please don't show Charlie Brown and Franklin in school together. First thing he did, he did a strip where Charlie Brown and Franklin were in school together. Just quietly sort of... You know, just getting on, you know. There's a real feeling of don't fuck with my world. Mm, he's yeah. quietly, steely. He's a very, reminds me of, I've always liked the way that uh, Nick Park, who makes the Wallace and Gromits, just talked about getting notes from the studio and just ignoring them. Mm-hmm. This is my world. Mm-hmm. I've made it with my thumbs, my little plasticine world or my little ink world. Mm-hmm. You can say what you like about it, but you do not get to run this. Charles Schultz has complete control of this planet. Sparky usually takes a mid-morning break to answer Charlie Brown's fan mail. Uh, dear Mr. Schultz, over the years you have been pretty darn mean to my buddy Charlie Brown and I have always forgiven you, but now I am on the verge of becoming anti-peanuts. If 
you don't let Charlie Brown have a baseball card of Joe Slobotnik, I will join the monastery and never purchase another Peanuts book as long as I live. Uh, you better tell him to, um, to make reservations at the monastery. <laughs> okay. And you can write in and say, it's my newspaper, I pay your wages, but you do not get to decide oh. what goes on in... He was angry his whole life. The, the, the one thing that he stayed angry about his whole life was the fact that he was forced to call the strip Peanuts. In fact, it wasn't, he didn't even, he wasn't even forced. It appeared as Peanuts, and it was too late for him to do anything about it. Someone just decided that that was a better name than Little Folks. I and, think he's, I mean, I must admit. No, I, I, I wouldn't I, have liked to call Little Folks. I think it's one of those things where, the, where sometimes the creator is wrong about one thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love Peanuts, and uh, I like Peanuts precisely because it's sort of vague. It kind of, it doesn't really... Tight down to any kind of specific. I think it allowed really it to fully... evolve. I think. I think when you look at those first few strips, the first first few years of the strip, yeah, you could call it little folks. It's kind of the funny yeah. things kids say. Doesn't the world look funny from a kid's point of view? Though God, the first, have you seen the first ever peanut strip? Oh, what? Well, yeah, uh, Shermie and Violet are sitting by the side of the road. There goes good old Charlie Brown. Ah, oh, here he comes, good old Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown walks past. How I hate him. Yeah, I know. I mean, it hits the ground running and it goes, it's going to be uncompromising about the depth of mm. children's feelings. And interestingly <laughs> enough, you know, it's interesting that a lot of those early characters didn't really stay the course. So Shermie and Violet, yeah. um, who and there was Patty as well. They were fairly boilerplate little kids, you know. Yeah, that's little uh, folks. Yeah. Peanuts has got Lucy and, and Sally and Linus. And, yeah, and, and, and Patty and Woodstock. And really the kind of the, um, the, the sort of catalyst for that is is the kind of the you know Snoopy um getting up walking on his hind legs and uh starting to have thoughts and assuming this kind of character and you know and then this his surreal interior world you know the sort of the the world war 1 kind of fighter pilot and then his friendship with Woodstock you know this fantastic finally we find you know we find a kind of suitable foil yeah for uh for snoopy who is kind of woodstock and that in itself is a sort of great sort of love story i suspect that the snoopy as author can see so we often see snoopy on top of his typewriter and being the world famous. here's the first world famous author <laughs> writing his next draft. it was a dark and stormy night it was a dark and stormy suddenly night, a shot you know. run out and then it kind of begets another running joke which is all the different kind of rejection letters <laughs> the increasingly rude rejection letters <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but and i think a lot of the time this is probably a smokescreen for probably the days when schultz probably couldn't think of a sort of plot line for today's script he sort of outsources the problem in a way to, yeah. to, to, to sort of Snoopy. It's an illustration of writer's block. You give writer's block to one of your characters. Exactly, yeah. Snoopy runs out of ideas when you run out of ideas. And this is great. I love this one where so, again, like you said earlier on, the first two frames that you could lose because it's Snoopy just thinking about what to type. But for pacing, they're nice. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was a dark and stormy night. Suddenly a shot rang out. A door slammed. The maid screamed. Suddenly a pirate ship appeared on the horizon. While millions of people were starving, the king lived in luxury. Meanwhile, on a small farm in Kansas, a boy was growing up. End of part one. <laughs> part two, a light snow was falling. The little girl with the tattered shawl had not sold a violet all day. At that very moment, a young intern at City Hospital was making an important discovery. The mysterious patient in room 213 had finally awakened. She moaned softly. 
could it be that she was the sister of the boy in Kansas who loved the girl with the tattered shawl, who was the daughter of the maid, who had escaped from the pirates? The intern frowned. And then that brilliant thing where Snoopy looks at looks at you, looks at the camera, as it were, and uh, breaks the fourth wall. He says, see how neatly all of this fits together? <laughs> and then, but, then the penultimate... This has got everything. So then you've got the penultimate frame... Linus comes along and says, but what about the king? And then the final frame, Linus being hit on the head with the typewriter that Snoopy has just thrown at him. Bonk! So the thing about, about Peanuts, I suppose, is that you don't grow out of it because it's still cool. You see adults in Peanuts t-shirts in a way you won't see them in Peppa Pig t-shirts. It's something that you sort of adopt quite young. And it kind of, because of the melancholy and because they're kids talking like adults, it comes up with you in a way that a lot of the stuff I liked a lot as a little kid, I have sort of consigned to childhood. But there's piles of Peanuts books you've got here. Mm. I've got these in the toilet. I've got them Mm. at home. I've preserved it. My relationship with Peanuts is remain pretty constant and obviously it seems to be for you as well is it something that you go back to oh totally i mean one one of the reasons you know it's been great sort of just knowing knowing that we were going to talk today was just uh great just going back to these kind of stories and just just realizing just you know the the like you said you appreciate sort of different things and the surrealism of schultz especially is a sort of thing that were like now i just didn't question as a kid you don't sort of question you know those kind of brave leaps that someone might make, you know, those leaps into the surreal, because everything is a bit surreal to you as a child. <laughs> uh, but, you know, sort of having a kind of a resolution to a um, plot where Linus is is stuck on top of a barn roof, and so they have to get helicopter rescue to come and sort of uh, rescue him. And the helicopter <laughs> is Snoopy, whose, whose ears have been turned into a kind of helicopter propeller. Yeah, it's unquestioned. That's one of the few moments where Snoopy's fantasy world can be used to rescue the kids because they sort of occupy yeah. parallel streams. I love it when um, that happens. Yeah, yeah, because I think Linus looks out into, looks straight at the uh, at the audience out the frame and goes, "Rescue helicopter!" <laughs> Cut to Woodstock yeah. riding Snoopy like a helicopter, and yeah, that's that's the Deus Ex or the the the, the Canis Ex Machina that gets them down from the roof. It's amazing, you know. It's um, so you get yeah. I do love the sur- the surrealism as. Is actually dated a lot better than the surreal, you know, often the surrealism you might find in Monty Python or something. And I don't know why that would be, actually. I think it's just... Um... Peanuts is very grounded because of the melancholy. Yeah. I think the thing that I got from Peanuts growing up, and maybe it's similar for you, was it was honest. Hmm. And the honesty of it, as in that thing of saying the first thing Charlie Brown says in the Christmas special, I'm depressed, Linus. Well, that wasn't in anything else I was exposed no, to as a no. kid. And as a kid, I was probably frightened of saying, I'm frightened, I'm depressed, I'm anxious. I didn't know what grown-ups would say if I didn't smile for a school photo. If the, if the school photo was a photo of me with how I actually felt, I would have been screaming. Children, I don't, I don't recall of a situation, uh, either from my own experience or from my kids' experience, where before a certain age, it would ever occur to them that they were depressed. They might say I'm sad, but uh, but I, if I sort of think about depressing atmospheres, atmospheres that were depressing when I was a kid, it wouldn't have occurred to me that I think I would have characterised them as maybe a kind of boredom or a kind yeah. of a sort of nothing much 
sort of going on you know like so for instance when you're sort of off sick on a school day you quickly realize that you know if you've got parents that work then you're not being at school is a massive inconvenience and the privileges that usually kind of extended to you on a weekend or on a holiday are not and not going to the zoo and not available (laughs) yeah you are in the wrong place and that's kind of depressing and and that's sort of but you don't I don't ever recall sort of thinking at the time I feel a bit depressed today but actually if I think about you know the test card music playing in the background that uh, nausea of yeah. boredom the properly all conquering yeah, the, the television's not going to help me because crown te- court's on television is reminding me that I'm not supposed to be here yeah. and um, things like depression you know what peanuts is doing is it's saying that the sophisticated emotions and anxieties and neuroses that obsessed america between sort of the big Freudian yeah. boom and the analyst boom, the, the Woody Allen years, which is when the when the, the peak is for me for, for peanuts, yeah. that sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, that is supposed to be the preserve of parents. Mm. I remember thinking as a kid, wanting to say to my parents, you know I can see this. Mm. You know I feel this. You know you give this to me. Mm. You don't think I you do. You think I'm just lying on the floor colouring in, but I can hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And even if I don't have the words to describe it, it's soaking into me. Yeah. And I will then feel bad tomorrow, and I won't know why. And what it is, I've just I've absorbed your bad feeling, your resentment that I'm at home sick or whatever. <laughs> Whereas what Peanuts does is it says these adult emotions belong to these kids to the extent they go to their own psychiatric booths and talk to yeah. each other and use the language of adult America yeah. to express the emotions those children were processing. I think as a parent, you're always aware that your kids are kind of bins for your bad feeling, mm. and Peanuts is a the first time I think as a kid that I realised, ah, that's what that feeling is. Yeah. It's in the house. Of yeah. course I feel oppressed by it. Mm. And I'm allowed to have those feelings. Yeah. Now and then I do think of what these kids are going to be like as they grow up. And I think that Linus, for instance, will grow out of his problems. And eventually, if we think of him as growing older, will grow up and probably be the most successful person as a person of all of these children. I think Lucy would be the kind who will remain a fuss budget the rest of her life. And I think Charlie Brown will always be a Charlie Brown because the Charlie Browns just don't change. He has enough of this within him to keep him uh, tied down the rest of his life. Like in the late 70s, when these books were a kind of a little bit of a lifeline in, in some ways, then um, they were completely consistent in a weird coincidental way with the message that I was getting from... There were two two messages that I was getting from pop music, loud and clear, the messages that I wanted to find, so I found them. The first <laughs> one I would get from the records that I loved, like Duke of Earl by Darts and If I Had You by The Corgis. <laughs> This idealised forever love is kind of out there and it's worth fighting for. And then that's definitely in Charlie Brown. And that's embedded by the Charlie Brown character. So that's one. The other one is this sort of sense that, which came through punk actually, that, um, you know, adulthood is just 
a disappointment and <laughs> and you know don't get your hopes up we're only making plans for night you Oh yeah, that don't get your hopes up. There's a there's a Charlie Brown frame where he ends up listening to the sea in a shell, and he holds the shell to his ear, and Linus says, "You can hear the sea," and he holds the shell to his ear, and it says, <laughs> "Summer's over, kid." <laughs> and we had that cut out and pinned on my brother and I's bedroom door because it was it went yeah. From day one of the summer holidays, we just used to laugh that we could pick up a shell and it would say, summer's over, kid. Yeah, yeah, the, exactly. That's what the sea says to Charlie Brown. Yeah, like, it's like life is not, you know, not sold as seed. So <laughs> so it's like, there's this brilliant one where, like, Charlie Brown explains to Snoopy, he was out and about and he saw this kid and his dog out together and they had a skateboard and the dog had a kind of lead that was attached to the skateboard. <laughs> it was pulling along this kid. And, you know, he thought it might be quite fun. I thought thought you know it'd be good to try that sometime and the final frame is is charlie brown pulling snoopy along who's standing upright on the skateboard and charlie brown goes this wasn't what i had in mind that's what life will offer you that's what that's yeah so yeah the two the two things you learn the two things you learn are there's an impossible romantic possibility out there to yearn for a star on the horizon to tilt towards that's charlie brown's yeah. romance and there's also the acceptance that it'll always be disappointing. That as the sun comes up, it will be Alfred E. Newman. The shell will whisper into your ear, summer's over, kid. That, yeah, that yeah. Both are possible. But it, that's good because that's not, that's optimism and pessimism. It's not a pessimistic strip. No. Because he's a survivor. You know, the, t- the two poles for me are sort of, you know, there's a song like If I Had But You by the Corgis, which, you know, is that's what you strive for. Or just like Starting Over by John Lennon. It's like we both are falling in love. And then, but there's also making plans for Nigel. Nigel's whole future is as You have to navigate from childhood to adulthood on high seas in very inhospitable sort of conditions to sort of get to the to the one that you the one that you want rather than the one you might end up with. In a mass attempt to be nice to poor old Charlie Brown. The San Francisco Giants hold a Charlie Brown Day at Candlestick Park, and San Francisco fans turn out to pay tribute to poor old Charlie Brown. Thank you very much. Charlie Brown is too overcome by emotion to do any speaking himself, so he has asked me to thank you for all of the nice singing and the nice applause And he would like to thank just everybody who has taken part in making this a day for all of us losers. The world needs more days for losers. Thank you very much. Remarkably, as soon as the pre-game ceremonies end, the rain stops. And the entire game that follows is played under beautiful sunny skies. And that's definitely... You know, the messaging in Charlie Brown is is consistent with that. You know, Charlie Brown still believes at the end of the day, still has still not given up hope, you know. And furthermore, he believes in the goodness of people. He believes in doing your best, you know, and he's aware of what the odds are, but he, he can't change. That's lovely. 
that's a beautiful place. What a what a brilliant thing to to, to pull out of a cheap four frame newsprint strip. Yeah, blessing, magical sorts. Thanks so much for bringing peanuts. Thank you, John. What a joy. Thank you, thank you so much. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe.